personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, my name is Debbie Reynolds. They call me the Data Diva. This is the Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast, where we discuss data privacy issues with industry leaders around the world with information that businesses need to know now. I have a special guest on the show today. Her name is Narita Parks. She is a data privacy information and data governance professional specializing in AI ethics and biometrics. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah. Well, we have been chatting on LinkedIn. I think we had a couple of calls, some networking calls. You actually introduced me to your professor at Northwestern, who was pivotal in the BIPA law. And her and I still need to catch up for sure. But you have such an interesting background. You definitely have a passion for privacy, but then also the ethical considerations and also biometrics. So why don't you tell me about your journey into these areas and why these areas are of so much interest to you? Absolutely. So I'm sure as my LinkedIn profile probably shows or does show and reflect is that I've been in the healthcare industry my entire career. So I think by degree, I'm an epidemiologist, I have an MPH, but also a molecular biology microbial geneticist. And earlier on, you know, I started my career as with a lot of private sector healthcare professionals in pharma and big pharma. And over a period of time, a lot of people take an interest in other areas. And that led me to wanting to kind of explore more of the business side. So back uh, to business school, and after business school, I, you know, was head first um, at GE into operations and process improvement, getting a black belt, all the things that GE is known for. And in that journey kind of started with the data privacy during that time. Uh, GE was one of the first organizations way back then to kind of look at data transformation, healthcare transformation, digital transformation, all these transformative areas. And they took a very strategic approach in digitizing, you know, a lot of their businesses for operational efficiency purposes, for uh, customer experience purposes. And I was on the medical device side. And so from that time, as technology has become more savvy, as you probably are already aware, data privacy really is an operational situation. And only when it is, you know, there's a cybersecurity issue or some sort of major concern does it funnel up to become a legal issue. But where these technologies and AI training algorithms, all these sorts of things that have come to light recently, do these things actually take place on the operational side, product management side, product managers developing and trying to roll out new products and services? And so that has led me through this journey of certifications and law school and all these different areas. And so as we know now, these laws are very prevalent. Requirements of them are very prevalent. The ethical components are very prevalent. And that has been my journey. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, my goodness. You cover all the areas. One thing that you said that I love and I agree and I've been telling people this forever. Privacy is an operational issue. (laughs) 
I think a lot of people, when they think about privacy, they attack it from the legal lens first, where it just doesn't fully absorb into the organization because it's more of like a top down and it needs to be more of a bottom up because companies have data, companies use data. A lot of the problems the companies have, especially with fines and regulation, is like almost entirely about operations. It's not about the legal part, right? Absolutely. Because companies understand the law. Absolutely. And I think that is the major area or piece that creates challenges for organizations. And I think they are learning, as with the rest of the world, learning about these technologies. Now, obviously, you know, data scientists, people like that, we already knew about generative AI and that it was coming and all these different things. Data privacy is not a new concept at all. But it is, as you mentioned, it is an operational issue. When something happens, it's on the operational level. And it only funnels up when there is some sort of legal implication, just like with torts and any other areas of law. When it bubbles up and becomes a problem, does it become an organizational issue that funnels to legal? But these things happen in the business. And if I could press upon organizations, that's where their journey with data privacy and establishing a program needs to start, is making sure that you are categorizing your data, making sure that you have proper gatekeeping of the data stewards, uh, making sure that there's training. Majority of data breaches or, you know, some sort of misplacement or violation usually occurs internally because, People, employees don't know, oh, well, I wasn't supposed to share that. They didn't mean to do it in most cases, but they do. They do share it. And it's a high percentage, if I'm not mistaken, from law school, 85% of of these issues and and misplacement and and sharing of, of personal information occurs. Now, certainly we have people and countries and all these different things externally with cybersecurity, but just on a day-to-day basis, you know, there's a lack of knowledge internally about what these terms mean, how does it impact individuals' jobs and how and what they should be doing amongst themselves as they're operationalizing and going about their day. How do you operationalize these laws? What should we be doing? What should we not be doing? And unfortunately, and I can say this, you know, because of law school, but Law attorneys aren't trained to, you know, do day-to-day day things. They're there to manage the risk of the company. So they're not going to be available to sit in on a product management meeting or uh, agile meeting, you know, or looking at alpha beta scale and launch toll gates and things of this nature to catch something that actually comes up. And so it is really critical that organizations recognize that the best way to arm themselves is to ensure that the business side is well knowledge and that they have properly trained individuals in data privacy, not just attorneys, but business individuals that really understand the implementation and structure and process development that needs to occur in their individual businesses. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And you touched on something here, you touched on quite a few things, but one thing I want to highlight that a lot of companies don't understand, and that is whenever they have data privacy problems, that most of the time they are not malicious. They are inadvertent. Exactly. So if your focus is on the malicious side of it, you're missing the majority of the problems that that people have day to day, right? Exactly. So 
if someone posts their password on their monitor, it's not because some, you know, malicious intent. It's because, hey, I need to figure out how to remember my password. <laughs> exactly. It's just, you know, survival because I, I don't know about yourself, but I have a million passwords and it's like it's, it's just getting more and more confusing to come up with unique ones. But one thing I want to add as well, when you mentioned that this is done inadvertently, a lot of time in organizations is spent on how do we prevent? And certainly that is very much an important aspect of this. Where I see companies falling short is on the remediation and resiliency plan. As people become more sophisticated to tap into systems and cybersecurity attacks occur, it's not if it's going to happen, it's when. And it is so critical that organizations spend just as much time on making sure that they have proper processes and guidance when this occurs to quickly ensure that customers are notified and to ensure that their information security infosec teams and IT teams that they're quickly able to identify and, and deal with these things. And I have been in organizations where breaches have occurred and it was, you know, really a panic attack because as organizations are learning, the focus and the resources are on prevention. And that is important, but it's also about ensuring that you have a well-balanced program that not only focuses on and resources are allocated towards prevention, but also the remediation and the resiliency after the fact to ensure that everything is secure afterwards. Yeah, I agree with that. Thoughts about AI in general? I'm concerned. So we know AI is not a new thing, but we see a lot of companies because of the excitement around AI are really pushing forward with, they want to get in on the AI gold rush, right? So they're really pushing forward with a lot of AI initiatives. And my concern I guess I have a twofold concern. One is I feel like companies are already struggling with the data they have right now. So to add more complication and more data, I think will just make people's jobs more challenging. But then the other thing is, as it relates to privacy, AI really heightens that privacy risk for organizations. So what are your thoughts? I wholeheartedly agree. With AI, I mean, it's a wonderful capability. It allows, particularly in healthcare, I mean, you're able to speed up diagnosing, you're able to do so many different things that improve operational efficiency, customer satisfaction, and on the healthcare side, just really bringing to light, speeding up drug development, diagnosing all these different things that are so important with accelerating advancements and ensuring that there are proper outcomes in health in a lot of different ways. But on the flip side of that, there has to be some levels of responsibility. I mean, as you are aware, I mean, we see case after case or situation after situation where an organization is 
in trouble for biases, and particularly in healthcare. I mean, we already have social determinants of health and underserved communities where certain diseases are more prevalent than others. And then when you layer in algorithms and taking data, and it's whether it's intentional or unintentional, being trained to, you know, I just read one case, I don't want to put a particular company on blast, but these cases are out there where the doctors and nurses, the algorithm was gearing them away from minorities and minority treatment in underserved areas. And that's the last thing that needs to happen when these particular individuals need critical care. We see it in hiring practices. With hiring, uh, one organization, this was really recent, the algorithm, they realized that the, they weren't going to be able to train the algorithm to not discriminate against men and women in terms of hiring practices. And so, you know, how do you combat that? Obviously, our government looking at different ways in one area that's been talked about is posing, you know, registrations and allowing different technologies to be registered because it'll provide level of transparency about how it was developed, the benefits, the risk of it. And that provides better insight into ensuring you're improving compliance, that you're looking at ways to mitigate these risks. But I think also another extra layer is providing guidance, tools, and solutions to product teams. I mean, obviously, I have been a product manager and started my journey after business school in product management and then leading business and product management teams. And that's where a lot of these technologies are actually being developed. That's where you're working on solutions and going through the alpha, beta, launch, scale process and working with data scientists and engineers, depending on the type of product and solution that it is. And if there isn't guidance there, attorneys, again, they don't have the bandwidth or the time to always sit in these meetings, if at all. And so providing guidance, tools, and solutions, product managers need to be alerted and organizations looking at the ethical components of it and ensuring that they have individuals, not just in legal, but in the business to ensure that these sorts of considerations are being looked at. Thank you for that. I love that perspective. Let's talk about ethics. So people talk about ethics a lot. Companies talk about ethics a lot. I like to see more ethical action, (laughs) more action put toward ethics. But what are your thoughts about ethics, especially as it relates to AI and, and privacy? I am a big proponent of ethics. You know, as we were speaking earlier, us with networking and me introducing you to my advisor in law school, Professor Alexandra Franco, who she wasn't um, not only my advisor, but also professor for biometrics, a lot of my data privacy coursework, but mainly my ethics and compliance classes. And it is such a pivotal component. And I would venture to say that it is just as important and it should be coupled very closely with the development of these technologies. I mean, we're hearing so much. I think there was, you know, an interview that right when these generative AI and chat GPT came out, the, I guess he was the founder of it. His name escapes me, but that interview circled around about, you know, how these different generative AI solutions, they may be able to think and feel and perceive like humans and like people and that they can, if not contained and control, could potentially, and, you know, these are from people who 
actually develop these solutions. I'm not a data scientist, so I can't really speak to the development of them. But it is thought that if there aren't safeguards around this, that we could potentially, I guess, like some of the movies that have come out of you know, robots and, and these sorts of solutions actually thinking and outthinking humans. So the ethical components definitely are key. And I think that, again, it starts not from the top down or from legal. I mean, obviously, I think it's a, a two-pronged approach, but not trying to restrict the actual development. I mean, these tools and solutions provide a tremendous value, but they're only valuable when they're not hurting or harming or creating biases against groups that they are intended to actually, as a whole, help. And I think that that piece of it is really critical to consider. I agree with that. The thing that concerns me, well, the thing that has always concerned me and that is happening now is that I feel as though some people think AI is magic and sometimes they will defer to AI or technology over a human. And that if we abdicate our human judgment to AI, we're in big trouble. (laughs) I agree. I think that they are extremely helpful as an accompaniment, maybe with maybe general functions, perhaps, that they could potentially replace humans. I mean, we're already seeing it now in certain sectors, cabs, 18-wheelers in Texas, I believe, they allow AI technology and these 18-wheelers to actually drive without people inside, or maybe there's a person there just to kind of monitor. But this seems to be, you know, where where things are moving. And while I am certainly not an expert in transportation sector, but I have read plenty of cases, you know, looking at situations that have occurred, looking at data in terms of the safety profiles. And in certain areas, do I think we will be able to stop that? I don't. But in the healthcare arena, which is my domain, I don't think that AI should replace a doctor. I think that they provide um, significant benefits and an accompaniment. And I think where the focus should be is to ensure that people understand how to utilize the technology and utilize the technology responsibly in terms of, you know, certain prompts in the way that you can get valuable information. But in the healthcare sector, I don't think wholeheartedly that a machine should replace diagnosing at all. Yeah, I agree with that as well. What is happening in the world right now that concerns you? Maybe have a private privacy implication. Well, there's there's a lot of things. I think the biggest thing that is concerning me is the lack of preparation with organizations not really fully understanding data privacy and the lack of investment that's being made to ensure that organizations have the proper infrastructure. I think that organizations recognize, okay, we need something, but they really aren't even clear on what they need and how it needs to be disseminated. And it's a learning. And these are not things that you kind of wait 
I know there was a term that has been used in the industry called blunder funding, where you wait until there's a sanction or a breach or something, and then automatically, okay, now we will invest in a data privacy. But it's kind of like approaching this Russian roulette where, oh, well, you know, we haven't had a breach or it's not a money generator, so we'll focus on other things. And that piece really does concern me because as technology is moving at the speed of light and not having at least baseline infrastructure, it is putting not only organizations at risk, but it is putting customers in the regular individual at risk for their information being compromised in a certain way because there seems to be this lag or delay with organizations really understanding this, recognizing that they need something, not fully understanding what this is, and not providing the proper guardrails to protect people's privacy. That is what is the most scary to me right now. I agree. I think the way that I have seen executive be taught about risk is, okay, well, risk exists over there, but let's not really invest money in it until something bad happens. So when something bad happens, we'll, we'll spring into action and start doing things where privacy is something that has to be thought of foundationally and also done in a proactive manner. So Absolutely. You don't get a privacy win after everything bad happens. Um, Certainly. And that is the piece that does concern me. This blunder funding of a will fund when a blunder occurs is really risky. And as we have seen with big organizations getting major slaps and punishment for it, It's really important because, you know, when we look at privacy laws and different laws, particularly BIPA, biometric law, there is various ways in which individuals, they have a a private right of action. They have certain implications around that. And when you look at the private right of an individual to be able to file a complaint or do an organization, in most cases, it's not just one person, it's a class action you are penalized or damages are awarded based on every violation that occurs. And so when you look at millions of people that could be impacted, particularly at these large organizations, that's where this large sum of money, every time a violation occurs, there are penalties that ensue. So I completely agree. It's not something that you want to put in delay because at that point, there's so much data that organizations have, depending on the type of industry that they actually play in. In healthcare, there's all kinds of data. Insurance companies, they collect millions of pieces of data. I mean, from when you went to the doctor, what those labs said, every disease that you have, every doctor you've seen, any and everything that you can imagine about a person is kept. And you think about these large payers and insurance companies, they have hundreds of millions of people that they insure. So you multiply that times the bits of data, and that's how much data out there. And and that piece is really, in my title, when you mentioned the information governance, it's information. Information could be 
personal information, any type of information that can take a form of data that is valuable to the organization that they utilize, place a value and to make money on. And it's really important that those types of information and what reasons it's being used, how valuable it is, critical nature of this data, all of these things should be categorized accordingly, and that should be the foundation to understand most organizations don't even know what type of data they have. They just, I mean, they just know they have lots of data out there. And so, so yeah, I completely agree that it's an afterthought. And it's unfortunate that a company has to be punished because once they are punished, there's an intangible hit and tangible hit. I mean, that's your reputation and customer loyalty and customer trust that has been tainted once it does happen. I agree. I agree. Let's talk a bit about BIPA, the BIPA law. I'm from Illinois, so this law interests me a lot. Oh, yeah. So BIPA, the Biometric Information Privacy Act, is the most stringent biometric law in the world. It has extracted over a billion dollars in fines and settlements for companies. It's the probably the most hated privacy law in the U.S. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and it's four pages long. <laughs> Exactly. It's very short and concise. And um, it's interesting because Professor Alexandra Franco, she actually was one of the people who actually drafted this law back in 2008. And so that level of conciseness is how she has managed uh, classes and, and coursework in law at Northwestern. But yes, this law is very pivotal. I think it has set the stage for other states to follow suit. And I think, you know, as we begin to look at, like, for instance, CLEAR and organizations using certain what they call biometric identifiers, which are like your retina, iris scans, fingerprints, voice prints, scans of your hand, face geometry, anything that can't be altered or changed with a particular person. These identifiers, there's certain requirements that organizations uh, must follow. And I think I kind of touched on a couple of key things with it, but the major piece is that this particular law allows anyone in the state of Illinois the private right of action. And what that means is a, a private plaintiff can bring an action based on a public statute, in this case, BIPA, to file a claim against an organization. But the second piece that I think is most important to bring forth to highlight is that it's very clear about citing private entity. And so the private entity piece is an individual it could be a partnership, it could be a corporation, an LLC, an association, or any type of group, but it does not include a state, local governmental agencies, any court of Illinois, including a judge or clerk. That is important because when you look at one of the biggest state and local governments that collect biometrical data, because they have to, are police departments. And those typically have been shown there's a lot of controversy, but they're excluded because that is the way that they have to identify and mark and and register people who have been arrested and are part of the legal system. So they are excluded from this law. Yeah, 
I love this law. I have friends who are actively trying to repeal this law. And I'm like, don't hold your breath. It's not going to (laughs) happen. I think the thing that trips people up about this law is, and it's so different than other laws we see in the U.S., where the U.S. is very consumer focused. Exactly. And a lot of our regulations, and this is a very human focused law. So not every human is a consumer, but every human is covered in Illinois under this law. So I don't have to be a consumer of your product to actually make a claim if I feel that my biometrics were used improperly by you. So I think because a lot of legal folks had not been accustomed to laws being like this. Like this is it's almost very European, right? Like this human rights element to it. So right. <laughs> I think that's where people really trip up there. But then at a fundamental level, and you know, I I speak all over the world with different companies and I literally say the data that someone gives you about themselves doesn't belong to you. Like it belongs to the person and like have heard audible gasps in the audience. Right. So absolutely. I think that's what BIP was trying to say. Like the data of the person, their biometrics belongs to them. And then you have to handle it a certain way, which is very simple. Like tell them why you're going to collect the data, tell them how long you're going to keep the data and then delete it within a reasonable time. Like that is so simple. Exactly. That three year period. Exactly. You either once you're done with the purpose of why you collected it or three years, whichever comes first. And you're absolutely correct. And I really think that when you look at the requirements and what companies must do to comply, what you will eventually see because of all the data privacy elements, this overlap of really good policy and good stewardship over data. I mean, it should be made public. You know, there should be a retention schedule. People should understand what you plan to do with it and when it's going to be destroyed and what purpose you're going to use it for. That's really, really critical. I think it's just good data stewardship in general. But I think more importantly, you have so many different elements now with people selling people's data. And I think that this law really does a great job of outlining. Also, you can't sell, you can't lease, you can't trade, you can't profit with people's data. You can't sell it. You have to, people have to decide and you have to make that public and give people a reason or a right to be able to decide with a consent if it is okay to to do that. And we see that so much in general with on your cell phone, someone is collecting your data and then they sell it for marketing purposes. And I think on the surface it, you know, I'm sure in a marketing meeting, someone was like, oh, wow, this is a cool idea to be able to collect this data and be able to sell it. But there are people's rights and things could be done with that data that someone may not want to occur. And in a lot of cases, I mean, just until recently, you did not have this opt in and opt out. You you didn't have that. And so now you're beginning to see some of those safeguards being put in place. And so I just think in general, just when you read the law itself, it just following it in general in a data privacy practice is just really good because it's just good data stewardship. I love your point about data stewardship and you're right. So the way that companies have traditionally handled data, once they captured it, they did whatever with it. So they didn't really have an obligation to be transparent 
with how they were using data, they didn't really have an obligation to delete stuff. So I think the data retention or data deletion is very important because not only that does that raise the privacy risk, it also raises the cyber risk that companies have. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. And when we look at just connecting the dots of our conversation with looking at ethics and AI and some of the things that government is talking about, the major point of the whole registration process that's being proposed is because there is a lack of transparency. I mean, there's a lack of transparency with everything. It's not just how these AI and these algorithms are developed and the benefits and the risks. There's a lack of transparency with data collection and what are you going to use this data for? How's it going to be collected? How's it going to be destroyed? How is it going to be used? Who's going to have access to it? All of these things are overlapping in that same language of transparency is being utilized. And I think that these are are elements that if an organization really, again, wants to create a really solid program from the bottom up, not top up, is to align these consistently so that you don't have gaps. Because what I feel is as the laws catch up state and if the federal system decides to also, you're seeing a lot of state laws developing statutes and acts and so on and so forth. But at some point, the federal government is looking into this as well. And I just think that companies would really do themselves a justice to couple these two together, kind of like one without the, you know, not having one without the other, because I think from an efficiency, from a customer, you know, loyalty and reputation perspective, and then just investment perspective and ensuring that they have a solid foundation, it's probably to their benefit to ensure that these two things are overlap, the AI, ethics, and responsible development in conjunction with looking at and examining all of these different laws. Because before, for the longest time, people was, I mean, you're talking about 2008. We weren't talking about all of these data issues back in 2008 like we are now. But Illinois was on the forefront of ensuring that it was there and it had been the lone one for a while. But now you're starting to see numerous states and there's some that's in the queue. I mean, you've gone from BIPA to now Illinois, Texas has one, New York, Vermont, California, Washington State, Colorado, Connecticut, Utah, Virginia, and it's going to continue to, to infiltrate the nation. And one thing that I really would hope, there's so many different things in the law and and how things are constructed, but it's going to become more challenging for organizations. They don't have these guardrails in place to really understand what's going on in these different states. Not all of them read. Like you said, BEEP is the most stringent one of the group, but all of them are different. And from my understanding, this piece of, you know, this private right of action, not all of them have this private right of action. If there is an issue or any sort of complaint raised, it has to go through the state's attorney general. So at the end of the day, there's a lot of nuances and changes or inconsistencies. They're not consistent laws across the board and organizations, if they're going to do businesses in the state, In these different states, they really need to think about how this is constructed and ensuring that it's disseminated throughout the organizations. I agree. So if it were the world, according to you, Narita, 
And we did everything that you said. What would be your wish for privacy anywhere in the world, whether that be regulation, human behavior, or technology, or even AI ethics? What I would like to see in the world, if I could have a a magic wand, is it would be wonderful if we had one consistent policy that encompassed all of those elements so that everyone could be compliant and uh, not be so, well, what does this law say in this state? Well, what does this country say if there was some sort of regulating body that could pass thoughtful and considerate policies and laws and, and legislation that would apply to every place on the face of the earth, that would encompass data privacy, would encompass the ethical components of it, because ethics doesn't transcend one sort of state or country. Ethics should be universal in terms of ensuring that things are done correctly. And if I had one wish, that would be it, to simplify and make all of these elements a part of one global law that everyone, that was mandated across the world. But unfortunately, that's not how that works. And so hence the complication and hence why companies hire people like ourselves. (laughs) That's true. That's true. It's definitely complicated and it's getting even more complicated in the U.S. As we see in 2024, at least 12 new laws are going to go into effect. And also some enforcement of some existing laws will go into effect in 2024. So I think the U.S. will be a very interesting place. Next year. Where do you see, because I know that with your consulting practice, you work all over. I mean, myself, I've also had global roles, but more confined to an organization. But with yourself, you're on the consulting end of it. What do you see as the biggest challenges globally and even nationally working in different industries and sectors? I think the The biggest challenges globally in different sectors is, I think it has a lot to do with new innovation and technology. So companies are excited about these innovations. They want to move into those new technologies. They want to move into new jurisdictions, but they are cautious, right? And they want to make sure that they're doing the right thing. So it's difficult to know what the right thing to do, especially as we have so much of a patchwork. So Let's say a company is using some type of emerging technology, whether they're building it or they're implementing it. Can I use it in Texas? Can I use it in Illinois? Like what can can or can't I do? So can I can I do? Absolutely. And then on the development side, I think the challenge is you want to build something that you can sell. <laughs> exactly. So you don't want to create a feature within a tool or products that makes your product unsellable in certain places. So it's just challenging in that way. Yeah, I think with AI, one of the things that outside of the data privacy space that I believe legislation is going to move towards in terms of examining the best way to manage generative AI. And I think that the legal precedence is going to move it in that direction is this intersection with intellectual property in AI, because what you're seeing is with cases is are the copyright infringement. You type in something, the authorship and the data ownership, and there's this intersection looking at where that's going. There's this intersection between generative AI, copyright law, fair use doctrine, and there's really these gaps, copyright gaps 
copyrights typically cover expressions, not ideas, but generative AI, it's challenging this, if you will. And so I think that there's going to be a lot of different, at least in the United States, and generative AI is going to force the way the law is looked at in certain situations. And I think that the precedent, the newness of what all of this technology is bringing forth is going to force that. And I think outside of data privacy, intellectual property and copyrights is going to be next. That's a very wise prediction. I'll make another prediction. Okay, well, that's... (laughs) On that. So... Because of all this with generative AI and different uses of AI, data lineage is going to become that much more important. Where today, we're basically saying this is how you should use data. This is how you should protect it. You know, in the future, we'll be asking, where did it come from? We're not asking that question right now. I can't agree with you more. I mean, that is absolutely the case because... I think that the idea is the more data you have, the richness that comes from that. It's kind of like, okay, we are really arriving, but unfortunately, the more data you have, it really does, as we've already discussed, causes a tremendous amount of data privacy issues. And I think one thing we didn't, we haven't touched on is the whole destroying the data? How long should organizations keep? I mean, obviously, the two main functional areas, HR and legal. Legal has to retain certain information for a period of time. HR is always having current employees, past employees. How long should we retain their records? And those two departments in general have a lot of data and what do those policies and what does that retention schedule need to look like to get rid of it and the proper means to destroy it? We always hear, well, once it's out there, you never really, quote unquote, fully, it's never really fully gone. I'm not at all a data scientist or IT programmer. I know enough to obviously do operations, but that is, I think, a question as well is how do you the source of the data, but how how are we getting rid of some of this data that the company actually has? And when is the value actually gone? How do you actually determine when we will no longer have any value for this data anymore? I love that. I think companies are very good and they're very focused on the beginning stages of data collection. They're not as good on the retention or data destruction part. Right. And that is where some of their biggest risks run, especially I tell companies data that has a low business value has a high privacy risk. Absolutely. Right. Because you shouldn't have it. (laughs) Absolutely. Because I think some of the more clear cut areas, being a trained epidemiologist, you know, clinical trials usually in those instances have a, a clear pathway. I mean, because obviously even with data privacy, with, you know, enrollments, there are data privacy with the clinical trial sites and this whole, how are you going to collect it? How are you going to retain it? And so in those specific instances, 
that part is clear in healthcare, for instance, for clinical trials. But when you begin to look at further exploration of a drug and future indications, when can you actually let go of some of that data? And it's just just fascinating. I'm glad I'm in the area. I am I tell people that to be in a tech field in general, but more specifically data privacy at this time where it's just exploding, you have to be intellectually curious. And that curiosity, I'm just really glad that I'm in the space to continue to learn and to continue to grow and and be a lifelong learner in this space. I agree completely. It is an exciting time. I remember when I I set up a Google alert for uh, data privacy and I did this 10 or 15 years ago. And like, there will be no articles, no nothing, nothing for years and years and years. And then... And now you probably get a thousand hits a day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that because recently going to law school and, and going through this process, going through it right at this time where all the information is fresh and new is so exciting. And I literally block out a couple of hours a day at the end of the day or either before my day starts to literally go through and read because there's going to be some new legislation or something, some development with just the passing of it in a state or some new legal case or something going on that it's amazing. I actually have alerts because obviously law school, you have your Westlaw and all these different, you know, Lexis and all these different legal sites that you have to use for legal research just for class. But more importantly, you can set up alerts and every day, like they actually have alerts for data privacy. And I, I mean, literally there could be 10 different things that are posted from these alerts a day, if not more. And then I have additional ones too. And it's just amazing how things have evolved. And I think it's going to, you know, it's going to be a, a continuous just growth because as we know, this, this is new. I mean, this is transformative technologies and there's new ways that it's going to be applied and it's going to challenge how we think about things. But more importantly, in organizations, it's a change management. The the foundation of implementing this is change management. It's changing the way organizations do business. And I think you probably know being a consultant, and I definitely know working in organizations that people get very comfortable with the way that they want to do things. Well, we've always done it this way, but this is forcing the changes and the whole psychology part of change management. And you can't really implement a data privacy program or ethics in AI or any of these new concepts without understanding those change management pieces, because it'll be like anything else that you roll out. It won't be successful because it's changing first how people think about business and how they are going to have to approach business. And people, as we all know, most people don't like change. That's true. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So thank you so much for being on the show. This is amazing. I love our chats that we have. And I learned so much talking with you as well. 
I learned just as much. Thank you so much for inviting me. And as always, I listen to all of your podcasts and look forward to some of these predictions. Then I'm going to keep track of your predictions and mine, and we'll have to do a, an update when one of our predictions, we'll have to see whose prediction makes it to the forefront first. <laughs> Absolutely. I totally agree with that. That'd be so cool. Well, thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Have a good rest of your day. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.